The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So happy to be with all of you today. Um, and I, my name is Liz Powell, and I'm filling in uh, for a few times for Marioline and Don. And uh, I'm a fellow teacher trainee with them. And I am. I've been practicing with Gil Fronstall and Andrea Fella for the last 19 years. And I'm particularly uh, fond of the practice that Andrea introduced us all to. Um, from Sayada Utejaniya and her own um, understanding of the Dharma. Um, if you were with me last week, you know that lately I've been especially interested in how it is that we're not yet completely free of suffering. Um, and I, I'm curious about what stands in the way. So uh, continuing with that... Um, I want to share a few thoughts today. Um, Last week I was uh, sharing reflections about how we tend to cling to fixed ideas about the self and also how those might be shown as we looked into the five aggregates subject to clinging. And those five things that we tend to through which we tend to experience life and we tend to lump or aggregate together and then cling to include form and some appearances and bodies and things like that feeling is the second one perception that quick recognition of what something is mental formations uh, the constructions of mind, the, the ideas we put together, the thoughts, and knowing through our senses, through sight, sound, taste, touch, uh, smell, and also through the, the sense of the mind, the thinking. So those five um, we cling to, but you know, one of the ways is through an idea of self, a fixed idea of self. Tanisaru Bhikkhu comments that the Buddha shared a very useful insight. Suffering is the five clinging aggregates. And the problem isn't the aggregates, and he listed them, he listed them as form, feeling, perception, thought fabrications, and consciousness. It's the clinging. So when he said that all he taught was suffering and the end of suffering, he was really saying that all he taught was clinging and the end of clinging. He goes on to recommend that we identify all the forms that clinging takes. And he lists four. Sensuality clinging, view clinging, habit and practice clinging, and doctrine of self clinging. So we looked a bit last week at ways we cling to the fixed idea of self, meaning who we are or what we are, I, me, and mine, and also who others are, um, you and yours, they and theirs. And in the process, we also touched on clinging to views. But this week, I thought we could go more deeply into clinging to views and look at how um, it relates to... They, they relate to one another, actually. They're often um, kind of mixed together. 
So Tanisaru Bhikkhu's definition, again, uh, passion of, of views is passion and desire for views about the, how the world is structured and how it works. So this is interesting. Um, he lists these four, and I, I want to um, pull up these four and share, share them with you as he shares them in his essay about the end of clinging, coming to the end of clinging. Um, so he says, uh, the first type, sensuality clinging, passion and desire to find pleasure in fantasizing and planning sensual pleasures. Then the next, view clinging, passion and desire for views about how the world is structured and how it works. The third is habit and practice clinging, passion and desire for ideas that tell you how you should act in this world. And then there was the form of clinging we explored a bit last week, doctrine of self-clinging, passion and desire for ways of defining who or what you are. So as we hear those, there, it's pretty natural that questions, and even ways we might dispute these, come to mind. So with respect to clinging to sensual pleasures, wait a minute, are we supposed to give up all pleasure related to the senses? Or with respect to clinging to views, don't we need to know something about how the world is structured and how it works? If we don't know enough about how the world works, we might suffer quite a bit. Uh, we need to find work in order to support ourselves. We need to obtain food. We need to meet our needs for companionship and engagement in the world. And then with respect to habit and practice clinging, don't we also need to know something about how to act in the world in order to have success at finding work and relationships? Then finally, with respect to self-clinging, don't we need to know enough about who we are um, to decide what to do with our time on the planet and how to relate to others? Yeah, you know, naturally, some questions will come up. Um, so we do need to engage in each of these areas in order to live on the planet, but so what what does he mean by calling out these four types of views? As I looked at it, I noticed it's important to observe that he specifically called out uh, in each of these four areas these important words passion and desire for so clinging isn't about re- rejecting the four, these four areas of human activity, sense pleasures, how the world works, how we should act in the world, or who or what we are. It's about what happens when we have passion and desire for these activities. That's where Tanisha Rubiku is pointing to our involvement in clinging, and that's where we can disentangle ourselves from it. So when the word passion is included in Buddhist texts and writings about these texts, it's not being used in the way we might sometimes use passion to mean strong interest or commitment, 
you know, like if we said, I'm passionate about caring for the environment. It's not that kind of passion. In Buddhist texts, the word passion is usually referring to greed or an unwholesome level of desire or an excessive attachment to an object. In this case, I'm using the word object to mean whatever or whoever (laughs) that greed, desire, or attachment is directed towards. It's an excessive and unwholesome level of heart, mind, and bodily involvement with the object, so much so that we're definitely setting ourselves up for suffering. Um, I might use, kind of with some caveats, I might use the words addiction or obsession to get just to get the flavor of how much we've become dependent on an object of passion and desire when we're clinging in these areas. We're depending on these objects for a sense of security in the world or for happiness, for a feeling of safety or a feeling of success. So we're ta- we're taking on the view or the belief that if we do these specific things, um, we'll be free from suffering. By the way, as we look at this area, the reason I said I wanted to throw in a caveat about the word addiction is that there are addictions that we human beings are prey to that have such strong biochemical and hereditary components that mindfulness alone might not be enough to recover from them. Things like drug, alcohol, nicotine addictions, sex, gambling, um, uh, or, you know, obsessive compulsive tendencies. So in cases like these, we may need the support of trained medical or mental health professionals, Buddhist refuge recovery programs, 12-step programs, sponsors, and plenty of social support from others who've suffered in that way. So I I just wanted to say that um, so people don't try to make their practice do everything possible um, that they need. But uh, let's explore this sensuality clinging, as Tanis Rubiku puts it, passion and desire to find pleasure in fantasizing and planning sensual pleasures. So it's a natural capacity for us as human beings to experience pleasure in sights, sounds, scents, tastes, bodily feelings, and thoughts. And there are very wholesome pleasures available. When we find meditation helps us feel more grounded or centered in our lives, that's a wholesome pleasure. Um, We might enjoy the sight of plants thriving or catch the scent of flowers in bloom. We might have a, a good feeling when we taste fresh vegetables, when the body feels healthy, when we feel kindness towards others. So we don't have any need to avoid healthy pleasures like these. We can actually appreciate them when they visit. Where we get into difficulty is the clinging part, the compulsive passion and desire to have these pleasures as a source of lasting happiness or other pleasures. Pleasures won't last. Uh, Unpleasantness won't last either, but pleasure won't last. So we get into the habit of clinging to these sensual desires actually more than we cling to the actual pleasures themselves. So the mind starts to crave the sense desire, kind of becomes obsessed with getting it, having it. 
And this is what I believe Tanisha Rubiku means when he writes passion and desire to find pleasure in fantasizing and planning sensual pleasures. I mean, that's quite a, a mouthful there. I'm like, what? wait a minute. To find pleasure in fantasizing and planning sensual pleasures. He writes, we had the ordinary attachment to sense objects, and then we had the craving for them, and it's getting a little bit stickier, and then clinging, and we're like, gotta have it. You know, that kind of passion. We get the false impression that because our craving is followed by the pleasure, when we get the object of craving, that what we crave is that pleasure. Our problem, though, is the craving itself and the clinging itself. We've, we can f- quickly find out we're never satisfied for long with any particular pleasure. The craving kicks in again. We want it again and again. We want more and more. These kinds of things arise. And we become, perhaps, afflicted with obsessive thoughts and drives to get that thing that we anticipate will bring pleasure, comfort, safety, security. One of the kinds of cravings that's really interesting is craving for comfort. I know I that's one that I'm <laughs> still working with. So this craving part and this idea that they're going to bring us pleasure, comfort, safety, security, success, that's a form of suffering. This constant longing for these objects that we associate with pleasure. So I have a thought experiment you could try next time you find yourself craving something. Pay really close attention to the sensations that arise in the body when you are craving whatever it is. Um, Watch what happens when you go out to get it or when you pick it up or when you buy it. Notice when the craving actually relaxes and the sensations in the body shift. So run this experiment every time you crave something and study it in detail over time. I have a feeling that over time you might be surprised by what you discover. By the way, our associations of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, bodily sensations, and thoughts with pleasure are entirely conditioned, or pretty strongly conditioned, let's say. If you compare notes with others, you learn that some of the things you find highly pleasurable don't appeal to someone else at all. I used to run a guided meditation on eating a raisin for groups of kids and their parents, and some couldn't wait to eat it. Others didn't like raisins at all. They didn't want to even put it in their mouth. (laughs) So I'm sure you can think of dozens of examples of how your associations with pleasure differ from those of other people you know. For some reason, my spouse finds watching Formula One racing pleasurable. I don't know why, but, you know, so we each have our own forms of pleasure. Um, The Buddha... uh, shared or taught that dispassion is the highest dharma and it leads to the ultimate unconditioned happiness and wisdom that's beyond this clinging and craving. When we're not caught up in these cycles of 
craving something, obsessing about it, or having to have it in order to feel happy, calm, comfortable, secure, safe, fulfilled. When we're not caught in craving, we're not clinging, and we're not suffering. Tanisru Bhikkhu writes, It's interesting that in the pattern of different levels of passion that get abandoned, sensual passion goes first. And then it's passion for form and formlessness, which can include not only states of jhana, but also abstract ideas and ideals. So that's an interesting hierarchy or guidepost. Um, He points to the process that when sensual passion goes, it leads to the end of clinging to ideas and ideals. That seems worth exploration to me. And um, this sort of encapsulates these next two forms of clinging. View clinging, passion and desire for views about how the world is structured and how it works. And habit and practice clinging, passion and desire for ideas that tell you how you should act in the world. Again, if we take view clinging, we're looking at the difference between having a functional set of ideas about the world how it's structured, how it works. There's a difference between a, you know, something that functions for our life and a more obsessive or addicted idea uh, that comprises clinging. So functional ideas could include information about what I'm asked to do in my job or what's important in being a caregiver for another person or how money is used in this culture to buy things, uh, to buy food finding out what food is nutritious and how to prepare it. Those are very functional ideas about how the world works. And by the way, functional ideas are modified all the time when we learn something new. So we might learn, the new boss has different priorities for my work than what I was accustomed to doing. Or food with this additive or or something, this kind of food, is not healthy for me. And if I want to have a sustainable level of energy throughout the day, I need to change what I eat. And by the way, it changes over time, as many of us know. Um, The clinging set of ideas and views about how the world works, um, is structured or works, are inflexible. When we're clinging, it's inflexible. And we find out in a painful way when our views clash with how the world is actually responding to us. So one example can occur with our views towards sitting meditation. We could have a view that if the sitting isn't pleasant, we're not doing it right. And, you know, many of us may have started out with that idea for in meditation. You can imagine, or perhaps you've actually experienced, that if you cling to that idea that meditation always has to be pleasant, you're going to suffer when difficult experiences arise in meditation. In fact, you'd be missing a whole lot of what's valuable in sitting meditation if you rejected or ignored experiences that are not pleasant. There are loads of experiences that are valuable to know through meditation that are unpleasant, Or maybe they're neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Or maybe they don't carry a whole lot of feeling with them, and they're valuable to know. Another example or belief on which we can get stuck is more from daily life. If 
let's say when we were children, we learned that yelling was how someone got their way in our family, we might get into the habit of yelling whenever we wanted to get our needs met. I've met children who had this background. But then when they encounter teachers or classmates that don't recognize yelling as a legitimate form of uh, getting needs met, they start to experience stress and suffering. And if we were to continue, if we were that child and we continue to reflexively yell whenever we want to get our way, the consequences might continue to become more and more negative until we learned another view that maybe it isn't the person who yells who gets their way. Uh, many people are either currently are currently searching, I would say, for a view that would help them understand why American politics has become so divisive. Or they're clinging to a view, those people on that other side of the political spectrum or who have other views have gone crazy. There can't be any rational basis for what they believe. So there's a lot of suffering and stress going on as individuals cling to views. And by the way, I'm not saying that it's not important to have ideas and ideals for how our government works, for how we vote. It's crucial in shaping how things go in our country. But clinging to views that it can't be any other way besides what I think can lead to significant blind spots. It can prevent us from starting to understand what is going on with people who believe differently than I do. By the way, one of the most helpful things I've heard about this is that when people are invited to build something together or work on a common project and get to know more about each other's lives before they learn about their politics, they're better able to get to know each other and like each other and then hear where the other person's views are coming from. Um, That's in contrast, stark contrast to the situations where people are put into a situation where they're asked right off the bat for their political views, which seems to ignite feelings of opposition and doesn't seem to lead to more understanding. The third form of clinging, shifting gears a little, that uh, Tanis Rubiku shared with us, but it's it's kind of can be related, um, is habit and practice clinging, passion and desire for views that tell you how you should act in the world. If we got stuck on thinking we had to follow the same habits or rituals that we've always followed, we won't track changes and shifts to which we need to adapt. So for example, if we stuck ferociously to the way we first learned to meditate without learning anything new or without being inspired by what others say about practice, there's a likelihood that we wouldn't have the same kinds of insights and development that become possible when we open ourselves up to additional ways to meditate, different ways to hold this practice. In daily life, you could consider habits you had as a young adult that would be very harmful to you if you were still doing them today. When I was a young adult, I worked for a big company that always had more, way more projects than my department could accomplish, and we got in the habit of working really long hours. 
In fact, there were there was a number of times that I would work all day and all night. I had very little work-life balance, and the first vacation I went on, I felt exhausted. <laughs> if I had continued that practice to today, by the way, I couldn't possibly do. I couldn't work all night anymore. I I've been able to fall asleep while typing something that interests me. So now my body just goes. Bam, I'm done. But if I had been able to continue that, you can imagine that I would have suffered major illnesses or stress-related physical problems, but I'd also have missed out on a lot that's important in life. So clinging to these ideas of rituals, um, we can do that in meditation too. We could think, I, I thought for a while there was a certain sequence of things I'd do to start my meditation like it was some kind of magic wand that would make the meditation be a good meditation. And I was sharing with a friend and, and she was like, why don't you just drop all that? <laughs> so I did and I found, wow, meditation still happened. So we, we don't need rituals um, in the way that we cling to them. The fourth type of clinging is the one we spent time on last week, uh, clinging to the view of the self. We can condition inflexible views of our body, our emotions, our thoughts, thinking of them as who I am, I, me, and mine. We can suffer a lot from those kinds of views. And if instead we see we're constantly changing, And in fact, we've probably been multiple different people within this very lifetime. (laughs) Uh, We can adapt to the fact that our bodies, emotions, and thoughts are changing, sometimes rapidly, sometimes so incrementally slowly that we don't even recognize it. What's really wonderful, when all is said and done, is that these same practices we do on Tuesday mornings are the ways we can discover, explore, and heal from any of this kind of clinging that we're doing. We can relax or find some ease anytime we discover a view. Every human being gets caught in clinging at some point. Don't worry. Find some ease around it, and then awareness will begin to notice when clinging is present in meditation or in daily life. When we bring this easeful attitude and awareness starts to notice, we'll start to recognize it as it is present. And as we recognize it, we can allow it enough room to really get to know it. What, how does this work? You know, what, why do I cling to that? What is it doing for me, or how does it work? And then we can begin to understand over time how it causes stress and suffering. And it takes time. I mean, for a while we can think something is just fantastic, and we don't know that it's actually not good for us until we've explored for a while. I vividly remember, and this is a really minor example, but I vividly remember a point in practice when someone gave me a butterscotch lollipop something I never eat. And I put it in my mouth and I started to taste it. And it unleashed this wave of craving that was really unpleasant. It was like I already needed the next butterscotch lollipop and I hadn't even finished the first few licks of this one. I actually, it was so 
uh, intense that I took it out of my mouth and didn't eat it because it was like, wow, I never recognized the suffering that could come from like sugar craving and flavor craving. So that's a really minor example. But it's just that, you know, as we do this practice again and again, we'll be surprised by sometimes something we used to think would be just wonderful will pop up as, oh, that actually leads to more craving and it doesn't feel so great. So it'll lose its grip on us. So there's plenty to be noticed. And if we allow ourselves to explore it, um, thoroughly and, you know, be curious about it, be fascinated by it. We'll be in the process of freeing ourselves from suffering every step along the way. We don't have to pressure ourselves to do this. We can actually, uh, kind of find it interesting. So, um, I hope that those thoughts might be of some benefit to you today. <laughs> 